From Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. You reach a point where, where it's so abstracted in your head, it's not even martial arts or weapons or anything else, it's, it breaks down into a weird math problem. Last autumn, I studied abroad at Oxford, a university in England that's been around for over 700 years. While I was there, I got in the habit of running around the university parks. Jogging through dirt paths that wound in and out of red and gold trees, I began to think that everything in Oxford was scenic, even the sports teams. There were the muddy rugby players who scrimmaged in the backfields, cross-country runners who occasionally lapped me, an intramural frisbee team that could never catch the frisbee, and slightly more unusual. Slightly more unusual was the Witchford Warriors, a historical reenactment society. Every year, they take part in an international reenactment of the medieval Battle of Hastings, and every Sunday they were out in university parks practicing for it, wearing chainmail, carrying huge shields. One of them would die every now and then, flopping on his side into the mud, but a few minutes later he would pop back up and rejoin the fray. I wanted to ask them what had made them stage a battle on a Sunday in the middle of a park, but honestly, I was a little scared. They weren't just kids out play-fighting with sticks. They were university students, and they had broadswords. You're listening to the Stanford Storytelling Project on KZSU 90.1. I'm your host, Rachel Hamburg, and for our first show of the winter quarter, we've got stories about the strange and amazing things that happen when people take fun seriously. Of course, we all have hobbies that we take seriously, like basketball or belly dancing or playing in a band. We do them for entertainment, to distract ourselves from the stresses of daily life, because we want to stay in shape. We work at them. But some people take fun seriously for different reasons, and maybe ones that the rest of us don't quite get. Some of them are just unusually competitive, some of them want to expand the arena of fine art, and some of them, well, some of them want to re-enchant the world. In this episode, you'll hear about people who take fun seriously for all of those reasons. We have a story about the transformation of video games from pure entertainment into the next professional sport. After that, you'll hear about a fan club that ended up taking a main character more seriously than his author did, and listen to two professors discuss whether it was actually all in good fun. And for the final piece, you'll hear Ken Kesey, writer of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, read the children's story that he once said was his best piece of work ever. When I finally got up the nerve to talk with the Witchford Warriors, I found out that in some ways, they are just a group of college students who play an unusual sport. They have weekly practices. They get recruited. I'm Fernie. I joined the Witchford Warriors about five years ago at Freshers' Fair. I joined uh, two months ago. I joined about two months ago at Freshers' Fair. Um, I joined at Freshers' Fair as well. They wear uniforms. All of a sudden I had to do a lot of sewing and make myself tunic and trousers and buy some shoes. Lots and lots of jewellery. That tends to be quite eye-catching. And they have social events. You know, feasts and stuff. We do there, sing a lot. There's yes. a lot of singing. And, and we try to keep um, authentic food. Um, uh, some of the drink is inauthentic. Like <laughs> <Very> coffee. <laughs> lots, <laughs> lots and lots of drink. We also have mead. 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 But for many of the warriors, what can begin as just an unusual hobby often merges into something more serious. 
an academic interest in hands-on history. A lot of people join for the fighting battle practice, but the longer they stay, the more interested they get into the history side of things, the living history rather than the pure fighting. That, yes. That's definitely true, because I joined very much as a battle society. There are lots of uh, sword fighting groups in Oxford, there's fencing, there's kendo, there's lark, there's, um, there's all sorts of ways you can fight with a sword, but this is the most, most realistic, the most kind of brutal way. And uh, it, you, you feel like a real solid warrior fighting, right? And then I suddenly went off to uh, fight a battle at Hastings, well, the, the mega battle at Hastings in 2006, I think it was. And there were uh, 3,000 people there, there were archers and cavalry, and, and we were there as infantry. And um, ever since then, I've, as Philip said, I've been more and more into the, uh, the history side. I've been trying to research the outfits, the costumes, the battles, and the, uh, how we find out about it, what we know in the uncertainties. The Witchford Warriors also do a lot more than this. Historical reenactment isn't just educational for the reenactors. Their recreations of battles have helped professional historians make discoveries about real medieval warfare. Occasionally reenactors can be helpful to historians as well. Um, for example, um, one historian writing uh, a book uh, or was uh, look, watching a reenactment group fight. And um, one, of the, one of the things that puzzled them was why there are a lot of, for example, sword blows to the very tops of the head, which you wouldn't expect in combat. Um, uh, but as it, as it turns out, watching people actually fight, uh, you can see how, for example, somebody might get a leg wound um, they might sort of, you know, sort of fall over a bit and then somebody hits them on the top of the head, which finally kills them. <laughs> this they offered to demonstrate for me firsthand. <laughs> Even if it's a little strange, the mix of fun and brutality that you find in battle practice satisfies a need that we probably all share, a need to let out emotions, even violent ones, in a non-violent way. The fact that historical reenactment has transcended that need into a genuine academic project is exciting and unusual, but the Witchford Warriors aren't alone in this achievement. Another activity known for mixing brutality and fun has also begun to transcend entertainment. Video games. Stanford students Tony Ricciardi and Patrick Thill bring you this story about the underground world of professional and competitive video gaming. Don't worry, that's not real gunfire you're hearing. Those are the sounds of Rainbow Six Vegas, a war-based video game for Microsoft's Xbox 360. But for Alfredo Diaz, that doesn't diminish the intensity of this moment one bit. In fact, Alfredo would later describe April 13th, 2007, as one of the most exciting days of his life. Everyone's yelling, everyone's screaming, and so it's pretty nerve-wracking. He was at MLG Charlotte, Major League Gaming at Charlotte, North Carolina, one of the biggest events in competitive gaming. His team had just come back from losing two games in a best-of-five quarterfinals match, and was going into the fifth and final round. The first three minutes were quiet. Everyone's shaking, everyone's uh, trying to sneak around each other, and then the uh, last 10 seconds, uh, pretty much my whole team goes out. It's me against three guys. I kill two, I turn around, pull the trigger, clip's empty. It's over. 
Moments like these show just how far video games have come since the days of the arcades. Modern competitive gaming is every bit as intense as a professional sport, with the very best players, or cyber athletes, joining teams, signing contracts, and competing in international tournaments in front of thousands of fans. You're sitting down playing a match against somebody, um, everything that you're doing is being projected onto a 50-foot you know, screen. And then you've got, a, you've got uh, a crowd of several hundred people all watching that and screaming and yelling and talking trash. As avid gamers ourselves, my friend Tony and I couldn't help but wonder just how big professional gaming is going to get in the years to come. Is this underground movement on its way to becoming the next national sport? How long until we're buying tickets to the next Counter-Strike tournament? Or getting together to watch Monday Night Halo? We're at this liminal moment. Um, the money is just beginning to come in from the outside sponsors. So I'm getting to see firsthand the transition from, uh, from this kind of uh, backroom, seedy environment as it slowly and fits and starts moves toward respectability and, and, and other stuff. And it's, it's fascinating to watch. Before Patrick and I could answer our questions, we felt like we needed a better picture of the current state of professional gaming. We wanted to talk to the players themselves, to hear about their experiences with competitive play. And so we left for San Francisco, hoping to meet some of these cyber athletes face to face. We arrived at San Francisco State University's Student Center, where the competitive gaming community, or CGC, meets every Friday afternoon. It was a large, boat-shaped building in the middle of campus. We entered through the bookstore and ended up in a large open area, like the arcades of a mall. At first, we weren't sure we were in the right place. Then we heard it. The explosive sound effects, the frantic controller clacking, the exultant cries of victory. We had entered the gaming underground. At first glance, the club reminded us of our own gaming experiences. There was a familiar clustering around monitors, the rapid staccato of gun firing in tune with the clicking of game pads. Every once in a while, one player or another would jump out of his seat in triumph. But as we stood and took in the atmosphere, we became aware of something unfamiliar, something you wouldn't see at one of our dorm room halo parties. The sound of their button mashing had a purposeful air about it and the character movements on screen were precise and measured. This was not a group of kids looking to waste a few hours killing aliens. They were gamers devoted to getting better. Upon entering the main room, we were quickly greeted by the club's founder and president, Chris Solis. My name is Christopher Solis and I run the competitive gaming community of San Francisco State University. We sat down with Chris and he told us a little more about CGC. It's a club as of state and its goal is to bring gamers together to enjoy playing games. We uh, have a focus on co um, competitive play. Um, we won't tell people they suck, you know. <laughs> We're here to have fun, but we really want to push the competition and the environment that brings. Chris initially started the club hoping to get some other people interested in competitive play, but he was surprised to see that the interest was already there. On the first day, we were packed. 
I mean, they even had to get, like, the fire marshal to get us to leave. There's just too many people, you know? And then that's when I thought, I think I'm going to start something. We asked Chris if he thought this interest was a growing trend. Did he think competitive gaming was on the rise? There's a whole new demographic that's going to rise and be the next generation, you know? I remember hearing um, how Halo 3 brought the movie industry to an all-time low that week. No one went to see a movie that week. Isn't that crazy? He isn't kidding. It turns out that the video game industry already grosses over $7 billion a year. That's more than the annual box office revenue from the film industry. As profits from these games have increased, prize support for competitive events has risen considerably. Back in 1997, the Cyber Athlete Professional League hosted its first tournament, with a grand prize of only $1,000. By contrast, in one 2005 competition, the CPL offered a million dollars in total prizes, with one player taking home a grand prize of $150,000. In pursuit of prizes and recognition at these tournaments, players have organized along the same lines as professional sports leagues. For some games, players form teams, known as clans, and the best clans contract their players, pay for player transfers, and hire coaches to help them train. As big as organized gaming has become, the material rewards still don't come anywhere near those of professional sports. Obviously, there must be something more than money attracting these gamers. While Tony was speaking with Chris about the scope of competitive gaming, I talked to the players themselves to see how they got started. I started playing in junior year of high school, and it was just a bunch of friends. We got together after school every day and played for fun, not competitively. But after a while, um, I started getting really into it. That was Danny Jang. He started in the same way as many of the players at the CGC, who began by playing casually and then gradually became aware of the larger competitive world of their game. But for all of these players, no matter how they started, there was a watershed moment, the first tournament. It was my first match, my first tourney match, so I was nervous. Mark Oblon describes his first competitive event for the fighting game Super Smash Bros. Melee. There, he faced off against Isaiah, one of the best players in the world. The first person I played was Isaiah, and he's really good. I mean, I held my ground. I got, I got two star. I didn't get like completely, completely messed up. Rather than discouraging Mark, Getting beaten actually made him want to continue. I pretty much got handed, so I realized that I just wanted to get better. Everyone we talked to described their first tournament as a turning point, when they first witnessed professional play. That's the first time I saw Isaiah and Ken and Captain Jack, and I was inspired. Once they catch the bug, a competitive gamer's experience of their game changes dramatically. Many of the players' training schedules seemed near obsession. We asked Alfredo Diaz about his. How much how much time a week would you say you spend? Oh, wow. Oh, man. <laughs> That's about five hours a day at five least. Five hours, yeah. It's, yeah. it's pretty intense. He wasn't alone. Many of our interviewees spend three or more hours a day practicing. We wondered how this affected their experience of the game. You reach a point where, where it's so abstracted in your head, 
it's not even martial arts or weapons or anything else. It's, it, it breaks down into a weird math problem. That was Brian Thompson, a Stanford graduate student who played Namco's fighting game Soul Calibur competitively for nearly six years. He started off just playing with his friends in the arcades. I mean, really, though, it was just it was just a matter of practicing, practicing, uh, and I, I kept playing against them, and I would try to be somewhat critical of what I did. You know, what where did I go wrong? Why did I get the crap knocked out of me here? Um, but it, initially, it was one of those things that just kind of happened. I hate the word, but it happened organically. As he grew more experienced, however, Brian's training habits changed. Rather than just sort of playing around aimlessly, you drill yourself on execution, or you drill yourself on, on uh, option selection and, and decision making in really particular situations, and you do it until it becomes second nature, and that's how you can derive the most from a limited amount of training time. Brian demonstrates how competitive gamers see their games very differently than casual players. The best gamers watch each other's videos for small cues that might give them an edge, and analyze the game to the smallest detail. These professionals have taken their games far beyond mere play. So competitive gaming has its big competitions, with their multi-thousand dollar prize pots and its big players, who devote hundreds of hours to the game. But there's still one thing holding it back from being a cultural phenomenon. Fans. Who would ever want to watch or even care about a video game except the players? Surprisingly, everyone we talked to was very optimistic. Really, it's almost like football. It's because, why do people watch football? Because they understand the game, and they get to see these professionals play. You know, they get to see the competition and excitement of the situation, whether win or lose. And I think that gaming has the potential to be that way one day. It really is the same thing, just a different game. We're willing to accept uh, activities that don't require athletic ability, per se, as long as they require skill. Poker, golf, synchronized swimming. What people like to watch, or at least for me, is I like to see people who are the best in the world at what they do. I like to see people who, who just radiate skill and poise and things like that. So that is already in place. The battle then becomes convincing the public that skill and poise and dedication and all that are in fact necessary. This idea that games require just as much skill as sports is exactly what events like MLG are trying to promote. If it catches on, they might get enough people interested in what the pros are doing to create a fan base. It's not that far-fetched. You'd be surprised what people can get into. If people in this country can derive enjoyment from watching people play cards, then by God they can derive enjoyment from watching people play just about anything. So we know competitive gaming has many of the ingredients of a professional sport major tournaments, skilled players, and a potentially large fan base. But even with all this, it's still hard to imagine an entire country embracing video games as a national pastime. That is, until you consider that StarCraft matches in South Korea already attract over 50,000 fans on a regular basis. Or that a Swedish song about Dota, a popular game based on Blizzard's Warcraft 3, made the top 10 charts of four European countries in 2006.
Vi sitter här i väntan och spelar lite Dota. I feel you, man. Maybe it's just a matter of time until we're buying season passes to Major League Gaming. We're seeing billboard ads for Fatality mouse pads. But what does this mean for the future of our favorite pastime? We don't think a professional scene would replace gaming as we know it today. Casual players would still have their weekend LAN parties, just like a group of friends getting together to shoot some hoops. However, it might change the way non-gamers view gaming. The players we talked to were intelligent and highly motivated by their games, always seeking to learn more and get better. If the average American can come to appreciate the skill and dedication of these pros, then maybe video games would no longer be seen as just mindless entertainment. We hope it does get bigger, because this gaming community is a unique and interesting one. Yet, from the jaded veteran to the starry-eyed rookie, they all have one thing in common. They love their game, and they're proud of it. My name is Christopher Solis, and I'm a competitive gamer. I'm Curran, and I'm pretty much the best Hale player alive. Hey, I'm Brian, and I'm a cynical, former, competitive gamer type person. My name is Jason, and I'm the newest guy on the team. <laughs> <laughs> Tony Ricciardi and Patrick Thill are juniors at Stanford. Next up, a story that began in the early 1900s, before video games or even televisions existed. Books were the big thing then, authors were the celebrities, and the king of literary blockbusters was a character so famous that he has become a cultural icon. Elementary, my dear Watson. Sherlock Holmes was the star of Arthur Conan Doyle's hit mystery series. In the stories, Holmes' friend John Watson, another character, would narrate how Holmes solved an unsolvable case. He did it with what he called the scientific use of the imagination. But even though Sherlock wasn't real, his character became entangled in a real-life mystery. In the 1930s, Arthur Conan Doyle, author of one of the most famous book series in the world, got wiped off the map, erased, rubbed out. We know who the perpetrators were. They were his fans. In fact, one of the first obsessed fan clubs in history. So how did they do it? And why? Fortunately, there were witnesses. I called UC Davis professor Michael Saylor, who has done a lot of sleuthing on this case. Every single detail is charged with meaning. But first, the setup, the backstory. It started innocently. People were so enamored with the story of Holmes that they wanted to extend it. They wanted Holmes to be as alive in the real world as he was on the page, to put him into new situations and new storylines. To do this, they began writing, well, fan fiction. Lots of people wrote letters uh, asking if Holmes was real. I mean, these were the people who thought he might be real, or asking for Holmes' help, even asking to borrow money. And then in other magazines, you start to have people publishing their articles claiming that Holmes is real. 
They began searching for ways to make Holmes as realistic as possible, trying to pin down really obscure details about his life that not even Arthur Conan Doyle cared about. Doyle was writing these for money, and he was writing a lot of other things for money. So he, he, tried, he kind of dashed them off. In, in so doing, they're full of contradictions, because he didn't really reread them when he went on to write another story. So early on, you know, uh, John Watson claims that he was shot in the shoulder uh, when he was in Afghanistan. But in another story, he claims he was shot in the leg. Uh, and there are all these contradictions in the stories. They just, they just crop up. And what the readers did was they began to try to figure out how these contradictions could either be reconciled or at least explained in terms of other events in other stories. People got really serious about it. One man even came out with an article that parodied biblical criticism, saying the Watson who got shot in the shoulder was the Deutero Watson, etc. It was so fun that soon articles just weren't enough. The Baker Street regulars, now a gang big and dangerous enough to merit a name, moved on to bigger projects. And eventually, things got ugly. Beginning in the 1930s, you actually start to get books, you get biographies, Holmes and Watson uh, being published um, with footnotes, very scholarly footnotes, because that's how one ought to play the game. One shouldn't, you know, so while you might propose a wildly extravagant explanation, um, it has to be done in a very sober manner, um, again, and backed up with lots of rigorous footnotes. Holmes is the first virtual reality character because those who were uh, taken by him as early as the 1890s um, began to write as if he existed and Arthur Conan Doyle, the author, didn't exist. Or if Conan Doyle did exist, he was at best John Watson's literary executor. So there it was. Doyle died of a simple heart attack in 1930. But he died a literary death when his fans chose to obliterate him from memory only a couple of years later. His literary franchise survived him, to be handed down to his destroyers in the form of biographies and spin-offs. But how could it have happened? Why would Doyle's fans have wanted to wipe away his reputation, especially so soon after his death? Professor Saylor has the answer. And it turns out, the strangest of crimes reveals the strangest of motives. I think one of the biggest answers has to do with um, the search for enchantment in the modern world. Before we could get to evidence, he explained to me what re-enchantment means. There are a lot of definitions, but basically, it's a sense of something more than what seems immediately there. That something could be purpose or mystery. There were a lot of reasons why the world didn't seem so enchanted by the time Doyle started writing his mystery stories, and a lot of reasons why Sherlock and his sleuthing made everyone feel better. Many of the cultural pessimists in the late 19th century felt that the world had become entirely too rational and too bureaucratic, uh, and that we existed in this iron cage, um, and weren't sure what to do about it. Um, and what Holmes did was he showed that magic, that, excuse me, that reason itself could imbue the world with wonder, that actually looking at every detail uh, uh, in a mystery um, will not only give you the answer to the mystery, 
but show you that coherent and surprising answers can be derived when you devote your own deductive and inductive uh, re uh, reasoning uh, abilities to it. So that explained why people liked Holmes. Reason had taken away enchantment from the world, and Holmes re-enchanted it by making reason magical. Re-enchantment was something Doyle desperately wanted himself, but he looked for it in ways that his fans thought were ridiculous and unscientific. In 1920, he came out and he said that uh, there were fairies, and you know there, there was a kind of uh, some young girls that claimed that they found fairies and they'd taken photographs of them, and these fairies were dancing around with you know bob haircuts and you know sort of early Edwardian dress. Um, you know, it, it's clearly these were cutouts from a magazine, but, but Doyle was totally taken in, taken in and, and, and so his followers, who were so entranced with the rationality of Sherlock Holmes, didn't understand how his own creator could be so duped by this, and, and also claimed that there was an afterlife and that spirits were speaking uh, through mediums. If you think about it, the Baker Street regulars represent a strange paradox. They were living in the early 20th century, a time period when industrialization, rationality, and the idea of modernity had begun to infuse themselves into the cultural consciousness. This transition, along with the World War, marked a departure from old notions of spirituality and enchantment. People were beginning to value rationality more, but they still needed a sense of something mysterious and magical to give them purpose. The Baker Street regulars were a product of that paradox. They engaged in an irrational fantasy about a character that stood for rationality. They needed Holmes, and they needed him to be real. Even though the Baker Street regulars are no longer around, their need for re-enchantment has followed us. I talked to Professor Joshua Landy, who is editing an anthology on re-enchantment with Professor Saylor, about why re-enchantment is called for now. Well, two ways of thinking about now. I mean, there's now as in since the 18th century, right? So in, in modernity. I mean, people date modernity to different times, but... You know, it's more or less since the Industrial Revolution, since, uh, since Enlightenment. The answer to that question would be, well, simply that Enlightenment served the function of clearing away a certain number of beliefs, and this left a kind of vacuum. And it's debilitating, even for some people, debilitating to live in the awareness that there isn't a pre-given purpose to my life. That's potentially debilitating. I mean, it's liberating, but it's debilitating. But there's another way of answering the question, which is why now, why in 2008? And I think the answer to that question, and actually if you look around, you'll see that, that there are quite a few uh, articles and books coming out on this topic of reenchantment in recent years. Um, and I think it's not coincidental because, it's because of the, the rise of a certain kind of religion, or at least religion coming to a certain public prominence. Of course, the quantity of believers in the world hasn't changed much. 
<laughs> right? So people will have a way of, of uh, generalizing and say, well, nobody believes anymore, and that's not true. Or saying, everyone's now a believer, and that's not really true. Um, but religion, what has happened in recent years is that religion has entered the public domain in a more powerful way, at least in the American context and also in the European context. Um, so two obvious examples, one, radical Islamism, and two, uh, the religious right in America, which a lot of people think uh, was instrumental in the, in the election of George Bush the presidency, so giving credence to the idea that there's real political clout there. And I think that the combination of those factors, and maybe some others too, is what makes something like this urgent. But it makes it urgent for some people. So I finally understood what reenchantment is and why we need it. But I still didn't really get how normal people could access it, short of fantasizing obsessively like the Baker Street regulars, or maybe taking lots of drugs. But according to Professor Landy, reenchantment can take all sorts of forms. One of the other ways to reenchant the world comes close to what the Baker Street regulars did, but it's maybe a little more toned down. Children's literature, we believe it, in a, in a sense. When we are the right age, we believe it. Whereas we, we don't believe the fantasy. We don't believe Lord of the Rings. We don't believe Star Wars. But we can nonetheless imaginatively inhabit those worlds, and Star Trek conventions are a good example, and um, the Baker Street regular is a good example. That's right, I think that the, the difference is that we are aware of our fantasies. And the awareness doesn't destroy them. For the final story of the episode, Ken Kesey and the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center bring you a piece of children's literature to imaginatively inhabit. Ken Kesey once said that this story, which is called Little Tricker the Squirrel Meets Big Double the Bear, was the best piece of work he'd ever written. Of course, he'd written much more serious things, like the novel One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but this story shows that he knew fun ought to be taken seriously as well. The result is as enchanting as it gets. You're the only youngsters never heard tell of the time the bear came to Topple's bottom. Now, he was a huge, high country bear, and not only huge, but horrible huge, and hairy, and hateful, and hungry. Why, he almost ate up the entire bottom before Tricker finally cut him down to size. Just you listen and see if he didn't.
It was a fine fall morning, early and cold and sweet as cider. Down in the bottom, the only one up and about was old Papa's son, and him just barely. Hanging in the low limbs of the crabapple trees was still some of those strings of daybreak fog called hate hair by them that believes in such. The night shifts and the day shifts were shifting very slow. The crickets hadn't put away their fiddles. The spiders hadn't shook the dew out of the webs yet. The birds hadn't quite woke up and the bats hadn't quite gone to sleep. Nothing was a move except one finger of sun slipping soft up the knobby trunk of the hazel. It was one of the prettiest times of the day, at one of the prettiest times of the year, and all the bottom folk were content to let it come about quiet and slow and savory. Tricker the squirrel, he was awake, but he wasn't about. He was lazying in the highest hole in his cottonwood high-rise, with just his nose poking from his pillow of a tail. He was dreaming about flying. Every now and again, he would twinkle one bright eye out through his puffy pillow hair to check the hazel tree way down below to see if any of the nuts was ready for reaping. He had to admit they were all pretty near prime. All day yesterday, he'd watched those nuts turning softly browner and browner, and come sundown had judged them to be just one day short of perfect. And that means if I don't get them today, tomorrow they're very apt to be just one day past perfect. And so, he was promising himself, just as quick as that sunbeam touches that first hazelnut, I'll get right on the job. And then after a couple of winks, just as quick as the sunbeam touches the second hazelnut, I'll sip right down with my tote sack and I'll go to gathering. And so forth, merrily dozing and dallying and savoring the sweet, still air. The hazelnuts get browner, the sunbeam inches silently on to the 15th and the 20th. Ah, but the morning was simply so pretty and the air hanging so dreamy and still that he hated to break the peace. Well then, the finger just about touches the 27th hazelnut when I, holy Dad blamed, gosh almighty, roar came kabooming through the bottom like a freight drove by the devil himself, or at least his next hottest hollerer. Oh, what a roar. Oh, oh, oh. And not just loud and long, but high and low and chilling and firing all to once. The haint hair and the spider webs all froze stiff. It was that chilling. 
whilst the springs boil dry and the crab apples turn black from the hell heat of it. Even way up in Tricker's tall, tall tree, the cottonwood leaves turned brown and looked ready to fall, still weeks before their time. Moreover, that roar had startled Tricker out of his snooze so sudden that he stuck startled halfway between the ceiling and the floor, and he hung there, petrified, spraddle-eagled, spellbound, stiff in midair, with eyes big as biscuits and every hair stabbing straight out from him like the quills on a puffed-up porcupine. What in the name of 60 cyclones was that? He asks himself in a quakering voice. A dream gone nightmare? He pinches his nose to check. The spellbind busts, and Tricker drops hard to the floor. Hmm, he puzzles, rubbing his nose and his knees. It is like a dream, a little nightmare noise thrown in, like your plain old usual floating and flying dream dream, except when you get real bumps, it must be a real floor. And right then, it cut loose again. Shaking the cottonwood from root to crown till a critter could hardly stand. Tricker crawls cautious across the floor on his sore knees and very, very cautious sticks his sore nose out and very, very, very cautious cranes over to look way down into the clearing below. Again, I says, The sound made Tricker's ears ring and his blood curdle, and the sight he saw made him wonder if he wasn't still dreaming, bumps or no. I'm big double from the high wild ridges, and I'm double big, and I'm double bad, and I'm double, double hungry. It was a bear, a grizzly bear, so big and hairy and horrible it looked like the two biggest, baddest bears in the Ozarks had teamed up to make one. Again, I says, hungry, and I don't mean lunchtime, snack time, little time hungry. I mean grumpy, grouchy, big time, bedtime hungry. I live big, I sleep big, and when I hit the hay tonight, I got six months before breakfast, so I need a supper the size of my sleep. I need a big belly full of fuel and lay by a fat to fire my full-time furnace and stoke my six-month snore. When the bear opened his mouth, his teeth looked like stalactites in a cavern. When his tummy rumbled, it sounded like thunder in the faraway hills. And when he swung his head around, his eyes looked like a double-barreled shotgun shooting, shooting stars. I ate the high hills bare as a bone and the foothills raw as a rock. And now, I'm going to eat the whole bottom 
and everybody in it all up. And with that gives another awful roar and raises his paws high above his head, stretching till his toenails strain out like so many shiny sharp hay hooks and then rams down, sinking them claws clean out of sight into the ground and with an evil snarl, tears the very earth wide open like it was so much wrapping paper on his birthday present. In the sundered earth, there was Charlie Charles the woodchuck. His bedroom split half in two, his bedstead busted beneath him, and his bedspread pulled up to his quivering chin. Hey, you! Charlie demands in the bravest voice the little fella can muster. This is my hole. What are you doing breaking into my home and hole? Well, I'm big double from the high wild hollers, son, the bear snarls. And I'm loading up the old larder for one of my double long winter naps. Well, just you go larding up somewhere else, you high hills hollerer. Charlie snarls back. This ain't your neck of the woods. Son, when I'm hungry, it's all Big Double's neck of the woods, says the bear. And I'm hungry. I eat the high hills raw and the foothills bare. And now I'm going to eat you I'll run, says the woodchuck, glaring his most glittering glare. I can run too, says the bear, glaring back with a grin that turns poor Charlie's glitter to gloom. Charlie meets the bear's blistering stare for a couple of ticks more, and then out from under the covers he springs, and out across the bottom he tears. Ears laid low, tail hoisted high, and little feet hitting the ground 66 steps a second. Fast. But the big old bear, with his big old feet, merely takes one, two, three, double big steps and takes Charlie over and snags him up and swallows him down, hair, hide, and wholesale. High up in his hole, Tricker blinks his eyes in amazement. Yep, he has to allow that big booger can really run. A bear then walks down the hill to the big granite boulder by the creek where Longwellers the rabbit live. He listens a moment, his ear to the stone, and then he lifts one of those size 50 feet as high as his double big legs can hoist it, lifted like a huge hairy pile driver, and with one stomp, turns poor Longreller's granite fortress into a sand pile all over the rabbit's breakfast table. Yo, 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 Ozark clodhopper! Longreller squeals, trying to dig the sand out of one of his long ears with a wild parsnip. And then this is my breakfast, not yours. You've got a nerve. Come stomping down here into our bottom, busting up our property and our privacy. This ain't even your stomping grounds. 
I hate to tell you this, cousin, but I'm big double, and all the ground I stomp on is mine. I ate the high hills bare and the foothills clean. I ate the woodchuck that run, and now I'm going to eat you up. I'll run, says the rabbit. I can run too, says the bear. I'll jump, says the rabbit. I can jump too, says the bear, grinning and glaring and wiggling his whiskers wickedly at the rabbit. Longrellers wiggles his whiskers back a couple of ticks and then out across the territory rips the rabbit, a cloud of sand boiling up from his heels like dust from a motor scooter scooting up a steep dirt road. But right after him comes the bear, like a loaded log train coming down a steeper one. Longrellers is almost to the hedge at the edge of the topple pasture when he gathers his long ears and his elbows under him and he jumps for the brambles, springing up into the air, quick as a quail flushing, fast and far. But the big old bear, with his big old legs, springs after him like a rocket ship roaring and takes the rabbit over at the peak of his jump and snags him up and swallows him down, ears, elbows, and everything. Good as his word, that big bum can certainly jump admits Tricker, watching bug-eyed from his high bedroom window. Next, the bear goes down to where Whittier Creek is dribbling drowsy by. He grabs the creek by its bank and with one wicked snap, snaps it like a bedspread. This snap, Sally Snip Sister the Martin clear out of her mudborough boudoir and her toenail polish somersetting her into the air over and over lands her hard in the emptied creek bed along with stunned mud puppies and minnows. You backwards bully, Sally hisses. You ridge-running rowdy, what are you doing down out of your ridges ripping up our rivers? This isn't your play, puddle. Why, ma'am, I'm big double, and any puddle I please to play in is mine. I eat the ridges raw and the backwoods balls. I eat the woodchuck that run and I eat the rabbit that jumped. And now I'm going to eat you up. I'll run, says the Martin. I can run too, says the bear. I'll jump, says the Martin. I can jump too, says the bear. I'll climb, says the Martin. I can climb too, says the bear, and champs his big yellow choppers in a challenging chomp. Sally clicks back at him with her own sharp little teeth for a tick or two. Then off she shoots like the bullet out of a pistol. But right after her booms the bear like a meteor out of a cannon. Sally springs out of the creek bed like a silver salmon jumping. The bear jumps after her like a flying shark. She catches the trunk of the cottonwood and climbs like an electric yo-yo whizzing up a wire. 
but the bear climbs after her like a jet-propelled elevator up a greasy groove and takes her over and snags her up and swallows her down teeth toenails and teetotal and then it so happens while the big bear is hugging the tree and licking his lips he sees that he is eye to eye with a little hole that is none other than the door of the bedroom of Tricker the Squirrel. Yes, sir, Bob, Tricker has to concede. You also sure as shooting can climb. Who are you, roars the bear. I'm Tricker the Squirrel, and I saw it all, and there's just no two ways about it. I'm impressed. You may have been a little short change in the thinking department, but when it comes to running and jumping and climbing, you got double portions. And eat, roars the bear into the hole. I'm big double, and I ate. I know, I know, says Tricker, his fingers in his ears. The ridge is raw and the hill's whole. I heard it all, too. And now I'm going to eat. You're going to eat me up, I know. But first, I'm going to run, right? And I'm going to run too, says the bear. Then I'm going to jump, says Tricker. And I'm going to jump too, says the bear. Then I'm going to drink some buttermilk, says Tricker. I'm going to drink some buttermilk too, says the bear. Then I'm going to climb, says Tricker. And I'm going to climb too, says the bear. And then, says Tricker, smiling and winking and plucking at one of his longest, whitest whiskers, dainty as a riverboat gambler with a sleeve full of secrets. I am going to fly. This bamboozles the bear, and for a second he furrows his big brow. But everybody, even short-changed grizzly bears named Big Double, knows red squirrels can't fly. Not even red squirrels named Tricker. Well then, says the bear, grinning and winking and plucking at one of his own longest, whitest whiskers with a big clumsy claw. When you fly, I'll fly too. We'll see about that, says Tricker, and without a word or a wink more, reaches over to jerk that big bear's whisker clean out. Bar, roars the bear, and he makes an ab. But Tricker is out the hole and streaking down the tree trunk like a bolt of greased lightning, with the bear thundering right behind him, meaner and madder than ever. Tricker streaks across the bottom toward the topple farm, with the bear storming right on his tail. When he reaches the milk house where Farmer Topple cools his dairy products, he jumps right through the window. Bear jumps right through after him. Tricker hops up on the edge of a gallon crock and begins to guzzle up the cool, thick buttermilk like he hadn't had a sip of liquid for a month. The bear knocks him aside, picks up the whole crock, sucks it down like he was a seven-year drought. Tricker then hops up to the rim of the five-gallon crock and starts to lap up the buttermilk. 
bear knocks him aside again, hefts the crop, and drinks it down. Tricker doesn't even bother hopping to the brim of the last crock, a ten-galloner. He just stands back, dodging the drops, whilst the bear heaves the vessel high and tips it up and gradually guzzles it empty. The bear finally plunks down the last crock and he wipes his chops and he roars, I'm big double and I'll take the high hills. I know, I know, says Tricker, wincing. Let's skip the roaring and get right on to the last part, okay? After I run and jump and drink buttermilk, then I climb. I climb too, says the bear, belching. And I fly, says Tricker. And I fly too, says the bear, hiccuping. So back out of the milk house jumps Tricker, and off he goes, dusting back toward the cottonwood like a baby dust devil, with the bear huffing right at his heels like a full-blown tornado. And up the tree he scorches like a house of fire, with the bear right on his tail like a volcano. Higher and higher climbs Tricker, with the hot breath of the bear huffing hotter and hotter and closer and closer and higher and higher till there's barely any tree left and then out into the fine fall air Tricker springs like a little red leaf light on the wind and before the bear thinks better of it out he springs himself like a ten-ton milk tanker over a cliff. I forgot to mention, Tricker sings out as he grabs the leafy top of that first sun-touched hazelnut tree and hangs there swinging and swaying. I can also trick his pursuer answers, plummeting past. Ah. All the way till he splatters on the hillside like a thumping ripe melon. When the dust and debris clear back, Sally Snipsister wriggles up from the wrecked remains and says, I'm out. Then Longrellers the rabbit jumps up and says, I'm out. Then Charlie Charles the woodchuck pops up and says, I'm out. I, says Tricker, swinging high in the sunny branches where the hazelnuts are just about perfect. Was never in to get out. And everybody laughed. And the birds woke up and commenced to sing. And the hazelnuts got more and more perfect. 
and the buttermilk just rolled down the hill. Today's program was produced by Jonah Willengans, Bonnie Swift, Charlie Mintz, Rebecca Shu, and myself, Rachel Hamburg. Thanks to Tony Ricciardi, Patrick Thill, Dr. Joshua Landy, Dr. Michael Saylor, Michael Lawrence, and Arthur Maddox for their help with this show. Original music for the show was recorded and performed by Yeltsin Collective and Kevin McLeod. Music for The Little Tricker Story was composed by Arthur Maddox, conducted by William McLaughlin, and performed by the following members of the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center. Mark Johnson, Stephen Schuster, Arthur Maddox, Robert Rauch, Synovia Cummins, Annie Kavafian, Melissa Kleinbart, Ellen Payne, Lisa Rautenberg, Tony Hoffman, Liu Wenting, Dyer Fitzgerald, Fred Sherry, Nico Bondolo, David Fidel, Joe Marangela, Todd Palmer, Susan Heinemann, Robert Carlyle, Wayne DeMaine, Michael Palmer, Richard Fitz, Gordon Gottlieb, and Jeffrey Malarski. It was originally recorded for Minnesota Public Radio. For the generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, Stanford's Oral Communication Program, Stanford Continuing Studies, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would like to thank Fenwick and West for their underwriting support. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. Tune in next week when we'll hear stories about trips, tour boats, tour guides, and all things tourists. For KZSU and the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Rachel Hamburg. ¶¶